Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. On this episode, we talk about the new coronavirus measures in England, and you ask us, has Keir Starmer's strategy changed? So, as Stephen said just before we started recording, if coronavirus doesn't kill us, we'll be talking about Brexit until the end of time. So, we're going to look at the government's new coronavirus rules on this episode. Boris Johnson made a statement last night introducing some new rules for England, mainly that groups of people will be limited to six from now on with legal powers to enforce that. If we kick off with you, Anush, does this come as a surprise? It's a good question. It wasn't so surprising to me the content of what Boris Johnson actually announced because it continues a rich tradition of the government's coronavirus response of the confusing gap between guidance and what's actually legally enforceable. So that limit of six people from different households gathering socially has always been there. You know, that was always the guidance. That was always technically the rule. If you tried to book a restaurant, for example, for more than six people, then then you couldn't do it because that was the rule. Whereas now this new rule of six, although they're introducing it as if it's some sort of new, super strict, different plan to try and get a handle on the rising cases, it's actually, it is actually the same rule. It's just that they're putting it into law so that it's easier for the police to enforce. So it's not so different from what we were supposed to be doing before. It's just that you're more likely technically to get in trouble for it. But in terms of the enforcement of other coronavirus sort of lockdown rules, police and also the government have been slightly reluctant to to be too heavy-handed about enforcing most of these things because of the negative press that the police received at the beginning of lockdown if you remember you know using the drone to spy on people going on walks in the countryside and and stories like that so you know you can tell that it's sort of slightly against their instincts to actually enforce it too heavily but yes i think it what this is is politically clever because it gives the government something to say something new to say and to sound strict for the majority of the population who who feel that they haven't been strict enough and haven't been on top of the numbers enough but it also isn't that much of a departure from the previous rules. And so, you know, they can't be accused of of being too draconian. So I think it's quite clever. 
But I think it just sort of confirms what we've spoken about on this podcast before, that if the government isn't willing to raise statutory sick pay, if it isn't willing to compensate councils entirely for what they've spent on coronavirus so far, as it promised to do, then really, you know, it has chosen the health of the economy over public health. And that is a choice that is a legitimate choice. It's a choice a government has to make, like like we've spoken about before. You can't really say that you're doing both. So I think this is another example of that. It's interesting because one of our questions why you ask us, which I completely sort of kind of agree with, and they were saying the thing they were finding frustrating was the number of people kind of going, but I don't understand why it's not okay for like me to meet seven of my friends, but for people to go back to school. And it's just like, well, you know, as upsetting as it is, then I can't play seven aside. I'm kidding. I've never played seven aside. <laughs> horrible. But, you know, as upsetting as it, it would be theoretically for me not to be able to play seven, seven aside, I, ultimately, like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live and I'll be fine if I don't. Whereas actually, like, the, the consequences of more school closures are really, really bad for the people involved. Really, really bad for our long-term health as a country, economically, in terms of our long-run mental health. But I think one of the problems the government has got itself into is that they broadly don't want to announce anything that is too unpopular. Of course, there are no popular things to announce about the coronavirus. So instead, it's just like every time we have this holding pattern of kind of going, oh, let's wait until we're forced to do something unpopular. And that means that we end up kind of making sort of like getting the kind of balance of things wrong. So, I mean, I actually think, you know, reducing it from the 30 gathering to six is about right. I think doing it in a way which does allow some things like funerals, weddings, and well, as our listeners may know, I am chairing this commission on to uh, racial inclusivity within the Jewish community and um, how we relate to one another within the community. And um, I I was doing uh, one of the, well, I've done lots of events with, with, with lots of leaders of various denominations. I did one immediately after the announcement. Obviously, it's the Jewish New Year coming up upon us. People found out about the change to guidance about religious institutions were fine via Justin Welby's Twitter account. <laughs> it's just like, I, I feel like that's not, it's not a great way to approach these things. But mm-hmm. I think that kind of speaks to the fact that at every point, they're kind of sitting there going, oh, if we do that, that's unpopular. If we do that, that's unpopular. If we wait long enough, then eventually like events will force us to do do something one way or the other, right? In the same way as with the original lockdown, right? You know, people had started to lock down already. Many businesses had, had started to send people home. You know, round here, sort of, you know, the majority of, of restaurants, pubs and set were kind of closing and pivoting to delivery anyway because they just weren't able to kind of, they knew they weren't going to, they, you know, they knew that it was like either voluntarily close and try and do something else or just shut down for lack of custom. But I think we are, A, reaching the limits of that approach, but also the kind of like everyone shuts down eventually or like reduces their social contact in a non-risky way. A, isn't that useful because people don't, you know, like our collective preferences won't necessarily produce outcomes that are societally desirable, right? And also, right, we're not very good at at judging risk. I mean, why would we be? And I think this is like where things need to improve. They need to kind of like take a, a more active role in going, we're going to close this for this reason or also just kind of talking the public through the decisions a bit more as opposed to like things like this moonshot idea 
I think, Stephen, the moonshot point is a good one. So for, for listeners who, who haven't been plugged into the moonshot announcement, this is the plan that the government is going to spend vast sums of money to get to a point where we have mass population testing at a huge scale after briefings that Boris Johnson believes is the only way to get through um, a winter of coronavirus. But it seems so vastly ambitious and so far removed from what we have at the moment with our coronavirus testing where people you know see if they can get a home testing kit see if they can go to their local testing center and there are none available they have to travel hundreds of miles to get any the difference between the reality and the ambition is stark it is literally you know like shooting for the moon I wonder if that's smart politics it just doesn't strike me that it is I think that the thing that you hear even like conservatives who are very sympathetic to to Boris Johnson, the thing they always say is that he tends towards optimism, that and that's his great political strength and weakness. That he can paint a quite persuasive, optimistic picture of what Britain is and could be, and can put a positive spin on things. They would argue, but that that means that he is really ill-equipped to deliver bad news and then I think the problem that you see with him and with Matt Hancock is that they massively over-promise and under-deliver such that this moonshot idea just it doesn't seem like a, a goer to me and I don't know why you would I know we shouldn't really predict things in this game but I'm gonna you know put gonna say it right now that I don't really see Operation Moonshot happening just a functioning test and trace system would work do you agree that this is politically dangerous? Well done, Alva, for overcoming what must be your inherent bias against lockdown because of the drilling that's <laughs> that's happening every time you record. I feel sorry for you for that. But yeah, I am. Um, so. I, 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 <laughs> it's, it's a bit like the ice cream band that seems to time itself every time we record outside outside my, my window. The ice cream band is a genius, right? Because... He has worked out than hundred. Like ultimately, that guy is, is boosting trade for ice cream van men around the. Like every time I hear, it, I'm like, oh, do you know what I'd like an ice cream? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I do think that that it's dangerous politics because you know, for example, Matt Hancock's first target for testing, which you know we we spoke about. I think the target was for the end of was it the end of April? I can't remember. But to massively ramp up testing, the government was being really criticised on the stretched testing regime that it had and he did well he did he did meet the target but of course he was then criticized by the head of the statistics authority for sort of the sort of chicanery in the way that they they met the target which was sort of sending tests out rather than the tests done etc so that degraded public trust but it did actually increase the capacity of testing and the testing worked quite well until recently we've seen people struggling to get tests again and so this is another example of that where it's a good idea, isn't it, to get millions of tests that would work super fast to try and get people back to living their daily lives. It's not a bad idea and it's not inherently a bad thing to try and be technologically ambitious. But it's another example, like you say, Alva, of something that realistically is unlikely to be up and running in the way that Boris Johnson has promised, a little like the world beating testing app which which you know hasn't materialized in the way that it was promised either you know there's no problem with being being ambitious and setting targets and being honest with the public when you know things 
aren't going to plan or aren't possible or the situation's changing so fast that, you know, it makes certain technologies redundant. But there is a problem with making promises, the promises fail and government ministers just try and bluff through it because of the way that it degrades public trust. Lockdown and all of the measures that Boris Johnson spoke about yesterday and and everything that has been put in place from the beginning of this pandemic relies on goodwill and public trust. And the more the government makes promises it can't keep, the less trust and goodwill that there'll be. And and that means that that it will become more difficult to control the virus ultimately. So I do think it is a bit dangerous to make promises like this, even though in the short term, it might be quite clever politics because it may distract from other difficulties that the government's having. You know, announcing a shiny new scheme means that journalists are busy correctly scrutinising that new scheme, working out how much it's going to cost, working out what technology already exists, speaking to, to scientists about, you know, how realistic it is which means that you may then, you know, not being able to keep keep up with the failures of the current test and trace system. Yeah, I think the moonshot thing does kind of feel like, well, I guess not feels like it is sort of a perfect example of the kind of general sort of get out of jail free card mentality than this new Conservative government has to the kind of various contradictions in its project. Like, you know, I know, do you remember that more innocent time when I would continually be like, well, you you can't really balance their promises on on debt spending and taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And their kind of big idea then was, oh, well, we'll reform the civil service. Um, <laughs> there'll be more scientists in the civil service and it will cause us to save so much money that, you know, then like these, you know, infrastructure projects will be delivered for less and it'll all, you know, everything will be a lot easier, right? And it's one of those things, I feel I say that and, and that's an unfair paraphrase, but that was literally the, that is literally the argument, right? Like, you know, you could, mm. you could read members, members of, of the project, you know, arguing that, you know, in the Telegraph or whatever. And of course, what that's really about is going, oh, don't worry, we don't have to turn to the country and go, by the way, we've broken one of these promises. And now we have kind of like, oh, so we don't have centralised quarantining of fresh cases. So we, we have never managed the isolate part of test, trace and isolate and our grip on test is mm, a, a bit mixed and it, if you can't test then you can't really trace and so then they kind of go like oh well what we'll do is we'll have a moonshot program and and we'll spend a hundred billion pounds on some brilliant people that we met at a party or that i read about online and it's just like guys you can't one trick your way around having to <laughs> tell people that they're gonna have to do unpopular things and they don't like and having like proper hiring and procurement processes. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm afraid that you know there is no magic way out of that. And I, I think the reason why it's politically risky is, you know, I have no idea what the point where the kind of failure rate becomes a problem, or when like the political project starts to collapse. But I do not subscribe to this argument advanced across the spectrum. You know, by people in the government, by some people, you know, very close to Keir Starmer, by some people in the Labour Party who are very angry about Keir Starmer's approach, then broadly the Conservatives are fine because they have this 30% core and the 10% of like committed Brexiteers they've added on top. That works if the 10% are continually prioritising Brexit, but right, there's only so much incompetence before people just go, do you know what, I've decided to prioritise not having a rubbish government, I think at least. And I think it's it is risky to have like yet another arena to fail in it does just sort of make me think of I mean in, in particular actually with Matt Hancock who has done this quite a lot I think you know he's arguably a good politician in other ways but he he does tend to make big announcements he sets you know huge targets like that was it 300,000 target for testing which the government met on one day 
fudging the figures but he he sets these huge targets and then you kind of feel like either he just thinks that by setting the target it will force people to meet it and that's the best way of of driving productivity and success from government departments or he kind of thinks oh that's a problem for future Matt you know well done Matt Hancock I've I've had a great day I've made a great announcement everyone was delighted with it <laughs> I actually do wonder if that's kind of the case that he's thinking so short term that the solution to a short term problem is to say how you plan on fixing it which I suppose is fair enough he thinks about those short term wins and just hopes things will work out and if they don't you know as you say, Stephen, you can just reform the civil service. <laughs> if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this is a question from Henry Mendoza. Now, Henry, apologies, I am going to shorten it slightly. But he's essentially asking, off the back of Stephen's very good cover story this week, has Keir Starmer changed his attitude from being someone who was more interested in winning Remainy socially liberal seats to smelling the coffee and changing his instincts to targeting socially conservative but economically radical new working class voters. So Stephen, why don't you answer first, considering this is something you've been looking into all week? Yeah, so as I, I, I write this week, yeah, the kind of overarching and yeah, I imagine this won't be that much of a shock to anyone who's been observing what Keir Starmer's team says and does and what they don't comment on and when what they do comment on, right? Then essentially, right, their their political strategy at the moment is, you know, no culture war, please. We're kind of, we're, we're leftish. Now, obviously, <laughs> yeah, like all of the voters, whether they were, because essentially, right, the, the, the sort of the problem that the Labour Party has is that there aren't enough left-wing liberals in the United Kingdom, right? You can get more liberals by moving to the right economically, and you can get more economically left-wing voters by kind of like, maybe even not necessarily by, by, you know, by changing your tone or moving on, on, on communitarian authoritarian, on the communitarian authoritarian axis. But you do have to kind of work out how to do one of those things. Or you can work out a way to try and deprioritize the bit which hurts you. Now, the kind of inconvenient truth is then what connects both those groups of voters, as Paula Surridge's excellent research shows, is they are all economically to the right of the voters Labour retained in 2019. But in terms of where you have to move to get that kind of group of socially conservative, economically restrictive voters, 
you can you have to move a lot less, at least in theory. Now, as Henry astutely points out, in the leadership election, Keir Starmer was talking about the 120 kind of seats. Yeah, he was talking about kind of an arc of seats, you know. I think he may even have been in Bristol for this, but yeah, all of the things kind of blur into one in my mind. Yeah, kind of going like, look, look at Bristol Northwest, a marginal a marginal that Labour failed to win in 2015, uh, held by a hockey score in both 20 in 2017 and 2019. Yeah, kind of basically the kind of more Canterbury's approach. I think, to be honest, it is more accurate to basically, you know, kind of elections are about decision architecture. Now, correctly or incorrectly, the question in the leadership election, if if, if, if the question in the leadership election had been, how do we win those seats back? It would have caused people to go, ah, oh, maybe it's time for someone with a northern accent, i.e. to vote Lisa Nandy or to vote Becky long Bailey. So I think the, the, main, the main shift is not so much that, like, he kind of, like, woke up one morning and thought, actually, I, I think then I've done the maths and I've realised there are simply more seats, particularly if you kind of, if you take the view that many in the leader's office do, then it's not actually particularly helpful to think of the red wall as a distinct set of seats from the seats Labour have lost of the kind of same demographics in 2005, 2010, 2015, and the seats they lost against the tide in 2017 then they kind of think like, well, okay, there are a lot more of that type of seats. But I think it is primarily about the fact that that it's no longer about differentiating themselves against other candidates and avoiding a question they they don't, not wanting the question to be, how do we win back Northern seats? Which was kind of crudely the argument of the leadership election that they were sort of arguing against. Because I think that's the other thing to remember is that actually like loads of the seats they're targeting with this approach are in the south yeah i think that's that's such a crucial point and it's come up with in a lot of the reporting that i've been doing on the towns fund and the so-called left behind places that you know the the sort of consensus is that labor is losing these particular places but they're they're painted in such a such a broad brush so like you say no two of the red wall seats for example are the same but also there are so many differences within those areas so you will more interesting measure that i've been looking into recently that i will be writing about soon is the so-called left behind neighborhoods so these are even smaller than wards you know they can be two or three streets and they will have completely different socioeconomic outcomes than, you know, streets next to them. So it's important to remember that Labour isn't just targeting this one message to, to, to win back those seats in the north or the left behind towns or whatever the main focus was of that leadership election after the general election. But they are, like you say, targeting seats in the south that have very different maybe makeups on an electoral map or, or in terms of the indices of multiple deprivation, for example, but do have, you know, all sorts of different kind of voters that different parts of Labour's Labour's offer can appeal to. So I do think that there is a sense from the Labour leadership and the work of Claire Ainsley, who you mentioned, I think, in the piece, who previously worked for the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, which has recently been doing a lot of work on how you frame sort of narratives about poverty in this country and inequality in this country to sort of chime with the general public. There is a sense that they're picking up more on that nuance rather than, you know, the sort of binary, we need someone with a northern accent. No, we need to to make sure that we concentrate on more Canterbury's type divide. So there there isn't I do think that you get from your piece and also from just what you hear from the Labour leadership at the moment, you I do feel that there is more of a nuance there in 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 recognizing that there's all sorts of different views in southern and northern seats that they need to win. 
Yeah, so I think my answer would be to Henry that I think officially the strategy hasn't really changed as you've both both sort of summarized it the idea of you know not not getting into culture war issues while kind of constructing a more sort of nuanced narrative around economic redistribution and poverty and particular economic issues that can unite its target voters and its existing voter base i think that hasn't really changed and you know the top line that Henry was referring to of during the leadership of, you know, it, it isn't just about red wall seats. There are plenty of southern seats that also need to be scooped up under this approach and that that Labour will also need to be picking up some socially liberal voters and, and, and seats that look to be more socially liberal in order to win. I think that basically the headline strategy hasn't changed but I think that what we're seeing maybe which which is maybe slightly different to what you have both said I think that it's proving to to be more difficult in practice that basically a no culture war please approach is not exactly what they have been doing they've been doing a yeah we will lightly get into these culture wars but we'll, we'll come down on the opposite side to Jeremy Corbyn so, you know, for example, Stephen and I were talking about this last week. The thing on the proms, I think that if you have a no culture wars, please approach. If the BBC asks you to comment on whether rural Britannia should be scrapped from the proms, you say people don't really care about this. People care about, you know, jobs and livelihoods. They care about, they care about the government getting on with coronavirus. Honestly, who cares? which I think is where most people actually are on it, whether you actually, you know, secretly love Royal Britannia and waving your wee flag or whether you kind of hate that. I think that mostly people can get behind a, that's not our priority. Probably, I think, you know, differences of opinion on things like that have existed for a long time before current culture war debates, and we don't need to be having a big crisis over it now. So I think that, like, on individual things like that, Labour are maybe being more socially conservative than maybe a lot of people would have expected. And they're showing that it that in practice it is much harder to just steer clear of those issues. So I think, yeah, rightly or wrongly, I think that's where the difference is. You try to avoid these things, but you kind of still have to, well, it looks like they're still picking a side. That's where it's different because the, you know, for example, the election review from from Labour that you mentioned, Stephen one of the big things that it really comes up with is that it won't be enough for Labour to just go after more socially conservative voters and it definitely needs them but that if you just sort of tacked to a more socially conservative approach it wouldn't be enough. Labour would do much better than it did at the last election but it would barely do better than it did in 2017 and it wouldn't be enough to win and the big argument from that election review is that Yes, you need to kind of push culture war issues down the agenda, but basically you need to unite people of different views on those issues around a a really bold narrative about Britain, about families, about communities, about sorting out the issues that really people really care about, like housing, because people coming from all different political directions are really concerned about the housing crisis, about, you know, whether you're young and in a position where you can't afford to buy a house or whether you're older worrying about your family there are things like that which you know are strong areas of consensus that the conservatives aren't really very well placed to pick up votes over so I mean I think Anush you've been you've been picking up 
examples where their their messaging around poverty has become a bit more nuanced and so on. I don't feel like we're really seeing yet that big, bold narrative that is attempting to stitch lots of different constituencies of voters together again around a big, you know, I don't think that we're seeing that bold, ambitious story about families or community. Maybe it's a long way off. Really, what we're seeing at the moment is just maybe this is the first step of this strategy, which wasn't made clear, but really all Keir Starmer is doing at the moment is signalling that he's more socially conservative and that Labour has changed, which isn't really the strategy. The the kind of the more unifying strategy isn't quite there yet. Yeah, I think so. The, the interesting thing about the the kind of deprioritised thing, and I can't remember which one of Owen Jones's or Patrick's book this is because I'm reviewing both of them for the NS, and I means I read them back to back, and like on the big things they broadly tell exactly the same story so I only really remember which was which when they do something which annoys me but in one of them someone says I think it's Owen's book actually says look the big lesson on Brexit is that you can't just lead on the issues you care about and I think that kind of shows where like the kind of like oh well we just deprioritize the culture war stuff doesn't really work because you ultimately do end up having to go Yes, I've always liked Rule Britannia. Now, I guess the difference is, and where I guess I would push back a bit, is that ultimately, like, things like Rule Britannia and, like, the Coulston statue are really easy non-decisions. They are unifying positions as far as the liberal authoritarian axis is concerned, right? As far as the average person, yeah, like, the average, like, socially liberal person who will, like, be wildly out of step with, like, the median British voter on a variety of things will broadly be like, I think it's inappropriate than that rule Britannia not be sung, right? They're basically like, you know, they're basically in kind of like fine, you do you position. Or they're like, actually, I've always quite liked arm. And ditto with the Coulston statue, right? Like, I guess there's more of the reverse than like, you're really quite socially authoritarian voter is still saying, yeah, I'm glad it came down. But I wish it had been done like by another means. And your so average social liberal voter is going, yeah, I'm glad it came down. And I guess in an ideal world, it would happen by another means, right? What this approach hasn't been stress tested with yet is what you do when it comes up with an issue that people really care about. Like it hasn't yet had to like actually vault any of those challenges. I think the interesting thing about Keir that I have been surprised by is that he is actually quite decisive, right? Like that's one of the ways he's not been as millibandy as I thought, right? Isn't like, say what you like about their Brexit position, and I imagine we'll talk about this in the coming weeks. They decided it incredibly quickly. But it's it's going to be really difficult, I think, as you say, because in practice, right, you don't deprioritise a cultural war, you, you take a side. And that works fine if, like, it's a side where, like, 80% of people agree with a proposition. But it's the, it's the dare I say it, the 52-48% calls that are the actually difficult <laughs> problem. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Al Ray, my colleagues Anush Shikalian and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.